Friends, welcome to This Week in the Way of Jesus, a podcast hosted by the Eighth Street Church. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that is trying to live this way of Jesus. You'll find both weekly spiritual practices and weekly sermons on this podcast feed. For more information about the Eighth Street Church, please visit our website, www.8thstreetchurch.org, or social media pages linked in the show notes. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I will never forget that look of disappointment on my son Esteban's face. He was about eight years old, and I had just ordered a bunch of new checkbooks, and uh, they were sitting there on my desk. So Esteban grabbed one of those checkbooks, and he started dancing around the house, screaming, We are rich! We are rich! We are so rich! I really hated to break his tender little heart, but like I had to do it, right? I I had to tell him that we weren't actually rich, that he couldn't just write any figure, you know, on the check that his heart desired, that that it would bounce. Uh, It was a a sad day in the Rodriguez house. It's really no fun uh, not having the money that you wish you had in the bank. Uh, But but I think there's something even worse than that. I, I think it's it's having unlimited wealth and and not even knowing about it or living as if you don't. Back in the early uh, 1900s, there was this this lady by the name of Hetty Green. She was worth at least $100 million by the end of her life in 1916. So you know that was a tremendous amount of money back then, equal to about $3.8 billion in today's money. There's a book written about her titled The Richest Woman in America. And yet she also goes down in history as one of the greatest misers in America. She was extremely wealthy, and yet she lived in very extreme, impoverished conditions. She often bought expired or damaged food because it was cheaper. She refused to use the water heater during the winter. She ate her oatmeal cold because she didn't want to pay the money to heat the water up. One time she spent the entire night looking for her lost two-cent stamp, and she found it in the morning. It was in her pocket all along. She only washed the dirtiest parts of her dress so that she could save money on soap and water, and she wore the very same black dress and undergarments every single day until they completely wore out. But here's the one that got me. When her son got a severe leg injury, she spent precious time looking around the city of New York for a free clinic. 
When she finally found that clinic, they had to amputate his leg because the infection was so advanced. She was among the richest people alive, and yet she lived as if she was in this dire state of poverty every single day. She was a miser. The Apostle Paul had at one time in his life been a spiritual miser. Or earlier in his life, he had this uh, misunderstanding of what life in the kingdom of God consisted of. He, he had lived rigorously uh, under the law, dotting every I and crossing every T, living rigidly and strictly with himself and with others. But this same Paul now takes this beloved congregation in Ephesus by the hand and he opens up before them their spiritual bank account so that, so that once and for all, they, they will know that they do not have to live as misers in the kingdom of God, that they can live with freedom because they are beloved children. They are heirs of the kingdom of God. Our passage is so very full of richness for the believer. Paul is so excited in what he is saying that in the original Greek, verses 3 to 14 are one big run-on sentence. Like when people get so excited that they can't stop talking, they can't slow down to catch a breath. That is what Paul is doing in these verses. There's so much in these passages. But today we're going to focus on just one verse. One thing that I believe that if we can just grasp, that if we can just understand, that if we can just wrap our minds around this one kingdom truth, then everything else falls into place. This one big truth is the foundation of life in the kingdom of God. Here, Paul tells us what is in each of our spiritual bank accounts. And friends, it is life altering if we believe him. You see, if we don't know what we have, then we live our lives hoarding. We live our lives striving. We, we live our lives constantly worried and anxious and angry and disappointed. But knowing that we are indeed rich, very, very rich in Christ, well, it changes everything. These are the words that Paul uses in verse 5. God destined us for adoption as his children, through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. Friends, did we catch that? We, you and me, we have been adopted as the children of God. Paul here is, is using one of the most prevalent images of God in scripture. The image of God as a father. God is a loving and a patient parent who provides for, who watches and who worries over God's children. Jesus himself loves to call God his own father, but also to paint this image of, of God as our father. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches on that. It's this parable of a man who is asking his neighbor for bread. It's the one where the father has already put his kids to bed for the night. Dinner has already happened. The dishes have already been washed. The homework has already been done. The iPads have already been powered down. The father has already led the family in evening prayers. He has tucked the kids into bed and they have finally dozed off to sleep. But just as the father is settling in for a little rest himself, well, the doorbell rings. So the dad grabs his phone, opens up his ring app, and there, sure enough, 
his neighbor, two doors down. He's at the door, knocking, ringing the doorbell. He's about to wake up the kids with all that noise. This parable depicts something we often miss in the exchange. What does the father say is his primary concern? It's his kids. He's a good father. He knows they need a good night's rest. He's concerned about his kids first and foremost. And so he's trying to quiet down the interaction at the door. But the neighbor, the neighbor is persistent because the neighbor is in a bind. He's run out of bread and a guest has arrived to his house to visit him. And he's in trouble because theirs was this culture of hospitality. It was downright wrong and weird and embarrassing if someone did not have something to offer their visitor. The friend in the parable has been irresponsible. In their culture, when the weekly bread was being made, they always, always, always separated a batch that was only for extending hospitality. But this man, he's not, he hasn't done that. And now he's embarrassed. And so he runs to the kindest neighbor that he knows and he says, dude, you have to help me. In this parable, we usually focus on the father and the friend interaction. And we assume rightly so that that the father in the story is God. But that somehow we are the friends at the door. And so we, we say that the whole point of the parable is that if we just keep on knocking and banging and begging, that eventually God will get wore down by, by us, will be exhausted, and finally will give us what we are seeking. But, but I think that Jesus is saying something else. The father in the story is God. The friend who comes to the door might be somebody not yet in a relationship with this father. Jesus seems to be saying that the salvation is for everyone. Yes, even for the Gentiles who might be coming at the midnight hour, even for them, the door will be open. Praise be to God. But keep tracking with me, please. A disconnect happens when we think that we, as God's children, are the ones outside the door knocking. Now, where does Jesus say the children are? They're inside the house. They are tucked in safely in bed. The children are inside, not outside. They are as close to the father as they could possibly be. This parable speaks of of proximity to God, of, of the presence of God, the father that tucks us in in the scariest of nights and who watches over us with care and compassion. Beloved church, We are not positioned outside the door. We are the beloved children of the Father who are already safely tucked in bed inside the house. And we have the Father's attention on each and every one of us. When we have a need in the midnight hour of our lives, when we are afraid, we don't go outside of the house and start knocking the door down so that somehow the Father might pay attention to us. No, we are in the same room as the Father. All we have to do is whisper in the dark. Daddy, Papi, Abba, and he hears us, and he tends to our needs in ways that only a heavenly father can. 
we are blessed with proximity to our Father. One of the weirdest things that I have ever experienced as a parent is when suddenly I wake up in the middle of the night because I feel a presence in the room. And then I, I feel some hot, smelly breath like hovering over my face. And the first thing I see when I open up my eyes are two little eyes just staring straight at me. And then the whisper, Mommy, I'm scared. Or, my tummy hurts. Or, I'm thirsty. I'm not the best parent in the world when I've just suddenly been awakened from my sleep. But you know what I've never said to my child? Climb out the window, go outside to the front door, knock the door down. Maybe if I feel like getting up, I will answer your needs. Go outside and beg for my help. That is never our response, right? Her response is to tend to whatever need is pressing on their little hearts. My kids, by nature of our relationship, they have access to me. Yes, even at three in the morning, they have access to me. There are no hoops to jump through. They don't have to beg. They are simply dearly loved children. And so they are cared for. That's the image that Jesus was painting in this parable. And that is the image that Paul himself is trying to paint here in his letter to the Ephesians. He wants them to take a good glimpse at what is already theirs by nature of being children of God. But of course, we know that the Gentiles, they had a really hard time understanding that this was their identity as well. They, they had a hard time understanding that they were a part of God's family. Paul is writing here mostly to a Gentile audience in Ephesus. And, and he knows that these Christian Gentiles, man, they have a big struggle to overcome. They had to resist the temptation of believing that they were outside of the house begging God to please crack the door open for them. Their temptation was to be spiritual misers. And spiritual misers, well, they don't feel like children much at all. They, they feel mostly like orphans who maybe for tonight they have a, a good place to, to stay for the night, but, but, but who don't, don't share the, share the same privileges as actual born children. So Paul does something unique in his writings. He, he takes a, a powerful image that was found in culture to teach an important lesson about God. Paul creatively re-images this idea of God's fatherhood as an adoptive relationship. Because people in his day, well, they understood how important and how special adoption was. In the first century world, any child that was born into a family was completely under the father's power. There were no agencies for protection or accountability. A father had absolute power over his children as long as those children lived. A father could sell his children, enslave his children, disown his children, even kill his children, that was his right as a father. So a child that is born naturally could at any time be rejected by the father. But under Roman law, an adopted child carried some protection. Because even though the father still had so much power over them, an adoptive child could not be sold. 
An adopted child could not be enslaved. Listen, church, an adopted child could not be disowned, ever. The Apostle Paul is doing something powerful here with his adoption language. He is changing the imagery of, 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 for people from a father that they have to fear to a daddy that they should trust. Paul is saying to the timid Ephesians who might be prone to settling into this orphan mentality rather to the, to, than a sonship mentality, listen, this father who, this God who is your father, he chose you. You didn't choose him. No, goodness, go goodness, no. He chose you first. He adopted you. He, he paid the highest price for you. He wanted you. He will never disown you. In Romans, Paul says it this way. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. No, no, no. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Since adoption was prized as noble and worthy in the ancient world, Paul is, is, is using it to paint a picture. God is your father, and not just because he has to be. God is your father because he wants to be. He adopted you. And as an adopted child, all of your previous debts, they have been forgiven. All of your shady past, it has been redeemed. You have a whole new opportunity for a brand new life. And all that belongs to your wealthy father now belongs to you. Isn't that good news for us this morning? An inheritance in the days of Paul was also different than it is today. Being an heir didn't mean that you had to wait until some later time when your parent died to enjoy what they owned. Being an heir meant that you could enjoy it right here and right now. It was already yours, not just yours in some later life. We don't have to wait until heaven to enjoy all that God has for us as God's children. There's so much in the kingdom of God that he wants for us to enjoy today in the here and in the now. That exactly might be the point that Jesus was trying to make in his parable of the prodigal sons. We know all, all about that younger child in the story. When he realized how much his father actually had in the bank, he went crazy. He knew it was his. He knew he was an heir and he didn't, he didn't want to wait. He misused it. That's one way that we can react, right, to God's grace. Just abuse it. But there's another equally wrong attitude that we find in that parable. The older brother, by all external measures, he looks like the perfect Christian. He has never left the father's side. The whole time that his younger brother was out there doing only God knows what, he's been in the farm, like working his little heart out. But in the story, we soon realize that the older son, well, he's just as wrong in his, in his understanding of grace as the younger son. At the end of the, of the parable, the younger son is back and the father is throwing a party for him and the older brother is brewing with anger. And what keeps him from joining the kingdom party? 
Well, it's not sin necessarily, right? That's what kept his younger brother away for so long. No, for the older brother, friends, it's an orphan mentality. He's been living in the kingdom as a miser. And when push comes to shove, he shows his cards with these words. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Did you hear that? He wouldn't dare enjoy a young goat with his friends when the farm, the entire farm was his. Paul's encounter with the love and grace of God, it changed his life so profoundly that as he's writing this letter, he is sitting in a deplorable first century jail cell. He is chained to Roman soldiers 24 hours, seven days a week. He, he knows that situation around him is, is dire and, and hard. But you know what he also knows? That he is a beloved child of God and that he is a co-heir with Christ of God's kingdom. Paul's external conditions and circumstances did not dictate for him or change his reality of who he was in Christ. Paul knows full well what is in his spiritual checkbook. The question before us today is very simple. Do we? Do we know? Do we know that we are the children inside the house with direct access to this loving father? Do we know that we own the farm that is not about our performance, that it's not our performance that makes the father love us? Do we know that we have been adopted? Yes, we have been chosen. We were wanted. We were desired. And we are dearly loved. Today, are we living as kingdom heirs or kingdom misers? Let us pray. Almighty God, today's message is so, so simple. It's the very thing that we teach our children in nursery that they are part of God's family, that Jesus loves them, that God loves them. But God, it is one of the most difficult lessons to learn as we grow older. But I don't know, Lord, the journey that my friends here under the sound of my voice this morning have been on. I, I don't know if they have grown up in church, I don't know if this might be their, their first time walking into a church building. But I do know, Lord, that the enemy fights us all of our days, that we might never understand the identity that we have as your children. And so this morning, God, would you do something so very powerful in this place? Would you wrap us, Lord, in your great embrace? Would you look us, each one of us, straight in the face? And would you remind us who we are? 
that we are not outsiders, that we are welcome at your table, that we belong. Would you wrap us in your arms, Lord, and remind us that you are indeed very, very generous, that you are a loving Father whose arms are open wide, whether we are the younger brother coming home from a life of sin, or whether we are the one who stay in the, in the house but still don't understand your grace. Remind us today, Lord, who we are in you. Grow our capacity to understand that we are beloved, beloved, beloved children of a good, good father. It is in your name today that we pray and we give you thanks. Amen. To come to the table of the Lord this morning, I wanted to share with you as we do this, this beautiful exercise that faithful Jews still do um, at Passover using the word Deanu to show their gratitude. The person that is leading Passover will say, if God had merely rescued us from Egypt, but had not punished the Egyptians, Deanu, it would have been enough. If God had merely punished the Egyptians, but not destroyed their gods, Deanu, it would have been enough. If God had merely destroyed their gods, but had not slain their firstborn, Deanu, if God had merely slain their firstborn, but had not given us their property, Deanu, if God had merely given us their property, but had not split the sea for us, Deanu, if God had merely split the sea for us, but had not brought, brought us through on dry ground, Deanu, if God had merely brought us through on dry ground, but had not drowned our oppressors, Deanu, it would have been enough. If God had merely drowned our oppressors, but not, had not supplied us in the desert for 40 years, Deanu, if God had merely supplied us in the desert for 40 years, but had not fed us with manna, Deanu, if God had merely fed us with manna, but had not given us the Sabbath, Deanu, if God had merely given us the Sabbath, but had not brought us to Mount Sinai, Deanu, if God had merely brought us to Mount Sinai, but had not given us Torah, Deanu, if God had merely given us Torah, but had not brought us into the land of Israel, Deanu, if God had merely brought us to the land of Israel, but had not built us the temple, Deanu. And I would add this this morning. If God had only forgiven us in Christ, Deanu, it would have been enough. And yet, and yet, he not only has forgiven us, he has adopted us. He has invited us to be family with God. He has extended the table wide that we might all partake and participate in the family of God. Deyanu, it is enough. It is enough. And you are welcome today at the table of the Lord. Please come forward and partake of the goodness of the Lord.
Friends, each week we invite our congregation to respond to what they've heard by entering into a weekly spiritual practice. You can find the episode to the practice and enter into this way of Jesus in the podcast feed. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you wherever you go.